It only goes downhill from there, I can tell you. I feel like after that I could probably find the most uninteresting verse in the Bible and preach it and probably get a hallelujah out of it. But I won't do that, and I don't have to do that because it's a wonderful time of year where we celebrate the coming of Christ into our world. And I want to preach to you today a message that the Lord laid on my heart, I think, last year. Um, And the title of the message is, Why There Must Be Christmas. In 1943, a struggling writer named Philip von Doren Stern wrote a short story called The Greatest Gift. He tried to get the story published, but none of the publishing companies were interested So he printed about 200 copies himself and distributed those to friends and family and thought that was the end. Well, one of those little booklets circulated and it found its way into the hands of an editor at Good Housekeeping Magazine. And when the editor read the story, he loved it. And he actually had it published in an issue of that magazine under the title, The Man Who Was Never Born. Well, then the story was read in the magazine by a Hollywood movie executive. And he saw the potential in the story, and he decided to have it developed into a screenplay. The name of the project changed hands two or three times, and it ended up being called It's a Wonderful Life. The film debuted in 1946, and it is still a holiday classic. You can find the old black and white movie uh, probably on the streaming services today. But you'll remember in that great movie, The Wonderful Life, it tells the desperate and discouraged story of George Bailey, who's played by Jimmy Stewart. He's about to end his life when a guardian, an angel guardian intervenes, an angel named Clarence, and he gives George Bailey the chance to see what the world would be like had he never been born. And of course, George Bailey doesn't like what he sees. It's actually a nightmare. And there's a pivotal scene in the movie where George Bailey is standing on a snow-covered bridge and there's dark water swirling below. He's thinking about jumping and ending it all. But after seeing all of that scene of what the world would have been like had he never been, he cries out in an epiphany moment, I want to live again. I want to live. And then he tears off through Bedford Falls a different man. So George Bailey realized the incredible impact that one life can make. But as I watch that movie, I wonder, what if we were to apply that same concept to Christmas? What if Christ had never been born? What if there was no wise men, no Virgin Mary, no Bethlehem, no Christmas? I assure you today... If that was the case, we would be in a world none of us would want to live in. In his great book, What If Jesus Had Never Been Born, writer D. James Kennedy gave us this thought. He said, quote, Scientists and doctors, artists, inventors, leaders, and authors have made transformational changes in one department of human learning and life, and they are enshrined in the annals of history. But Jesus Christ, The greatest man who ever lived changed virtually every aspect of human civilization as we know it. And most people in the Western world, he said, don't realize it. Everything that Jesus touched, he utterly transformed. He touched time when he was born into the... His birthday forever altered the way we measure time. It's said he 
turned aside the river of the ages out of its course and lifted the centuries off their hinges. There's never been anyone like Jesus and there will never be another who over the ages did more good for people in more places than He. And all God's people said, Amen. So in today's message, we'll really only be able to scratch the surface, but I want to explore this idea of why there must be Christmas. And I want to examine four compelling reasons today for why there must be a manger, why there must have been a wise man, and why there must be a Christ child. Number one, I want you to see this. Without Christmas, our Bible would be untrue. Without Christmas, our Bible would be untrue. Now, friend, you need to understand that the birth of Christ is one of the most prophetically significant events that is foretold in the Scriptures. In fact, the scholars have counted, and they note that there are over 300 prophecies concerning the first advent of Christ, all of which were fulfilled precisely, accurately, and literally. Of those 300 that deal with Jesus' first coming, about 40, they say, deal with the prophecies of Christmas. Now, these prophecies that we read in the Scriptures about Christmas have a few important reasons why they are there. First off is the Messiah's identification. These were features that were given long in advance for what the people were to look for so that when the Messiah arrived, they would be able to quickly identify Him. The prophecies are also there to prove and to show the Bible's inspiration. That the Bible itself has a supernatural origin And the reason we know that is because of the prophetic word being validated and vindicated many, many times over. And then the third reason why these prophecies are important is it shows the Father's involvement in history. That God isn't distant, that God hasn't forgotten about us, that God isn't aloof, that God uh, is involved in the affairs of history. As I've said before, history is His story. And God entered into the human condition and the story of time and space through the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, and He came as a hero to rescue us from sin and Satan. Now, many of these prophecies are spoken hundreds of years in advance and are so specific that it is impossible that they could be fulfilled just by random chance. Now, I don't have time to go through all these, but let me just give you the highlights of what the Bible gives us concerning the Christmas prophecies, and you be the judge. If we turn in this prophetic word, we find the Savior's pedigree is prophesied. In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and in Genesis 49, 10, it's predicted that the Messiah would be a descendant of Abraham, and he would come from one of Abraham's grandsons, the tribe of Judah. And we see that these are fulfilled in Jesus' genealogy. When you open Matthew chapter 1 and you read that genealogy, there you see you can trace the family tree of Jesus. There's two prophecies that show that the Messiah would have a legal claim to royalty, that he would be a descendant of David. Uh, Those are in Isaiah 11.1 and Jeremiah 23.5 and 6. Those are fulfilled when the angel comes to Mary and announces to her that she will be the vessel that will deliver the Christ child and There we learn that he's going to sit on the throne of David forever and ever. So think about this. As time progressed, God zeroed his focus from one ethnic group 
down to one tribe and then to one family and then to one little virgin girl and one little carpenter and foretold the Savior's pedigree. The prophecies also talk about the Savior's place. You can go to Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. Written about 700 years before Christ, they foretold that Jesus would be born in the little town of Bethlehem. Think about this great thought, friend. Uh, Caesar didn't know it, but his decree in Luke chapter 2 that all the subjects in the Roman Empire are to return to their hometown and to be counted for the census, that's the very object that God used to put the world in motion so that He could get a little carpenter and a Jewish maiden up from Nazareth about 80 miles down to Bethlehem. And and it showed that God would put the whole world in motion just to fulfill one word in His prophetic Scriptures. The Savior's place and the Savior's pedigree. The prophecies also talk about the Savior's period. The time in which He would appear Daniel gave the exact timetable for the Messiah's appearance. You can read about that in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27. But if I had time, I could show you that according to this one stunning prophecy, that the very day of Jesus' appearance, His presentation to the nation would come, listen to this, 173,880 days after the day of decree was given for the Jewish people to return from captivity and rebuild their temple. A day which historians know, March 5th, 444 B.C., you take Daniel's prophecy, you count 173,880 days from that day and the appearance of the Messiah. God isn't playing games here. God doesn't play chance. He's precise. Prophecy said in Daniel 9 that the Messiah would be cut off before the year 70 A.D. All this is fulfilled in the New Testament, especially when you get to Luke chapter 2. There's a set of historical crosshairs for the time of Jesus' birth. Friend, Christianity is the most valid and verified world religion out there. We have facts. We have history. We have archaeology. We have the answers for a skeptical world who wants to know, is there really anything behind your ancient religion? Yes. If you're willing to put the time in and be intellectually honest, you will walk away from this having not all your questions, but most of the big ones answered such that you can say, yes, this is a reasonable faith. The Savior's period, the Savior's place, the Savior's pedigree. The Bible also talked about the Savior's purity. Isaiah 7.14 predicted that Messiah would be virgin born, that He would be sinless. This is confirmed in the angelic announcement to Mary again in Luke chapter 1. He had to be virgin born. There's no other way that He could be 100% man and 100% God and yet enter into the human race without a sinner's nature. What a beautiful plan that God had all along. And then the Savior's purpose. The oldest prophecy in the Bible, the first prophecy, Genesis 3.15, predicted that the Redeemer would be born of a woman and that His heel would be bruised by the serpent. Picture of Satan. This prophecy, all the way back in Genesis, at the dawn of time in Eden, goes from Christmas to Calvary. And friend, it's no accident that the Bible says in Genesis 3.15 that He would have His heel pierced Because, think about it, crucifixion isn't even invented yet, and yet God knows how the Son is going to die. And how did they execute people by crucifixion? By driving nails through the wrists and through the feet. I'm telling you, a fulfillment of the day that Jesus went 
to the cross. Prophecy is precise right down to the gnat's whisker. So here's the point. Many of these prophecies would be impossible to fulfill by human manipulation. Not even blind chance. You have a better shot of going out and winning the lottery about three times in a row than you do of one person by chance just fulfilling these prophecies. And if you're a skeptic today, if you're a doubter, if you wonder, is there really anything behind Christianity, I give you the prophetic word. Build your life upon the sure promise of God. Think about this. How could one cause himself to be virgin born? How do you do that? How could someone plan to be born in Bethlehem and choose the family that they were going to live in? How could anyone engineer their birth so that it would occur at a specific time and they would have a specific ancestry? Friend, the only way that's possible is if you're eternal God and you can come from outside time and space and enter into the human world any way you choose. There's no other way. In fact, this evidence was so great that it caused a longtime atheist, a man named Lee Strobel, who is a writer for the Chicago Tribune, he wrote a book called The Case for Christ, and he tried to disprove Christianity like so many have down through the years, and he found out that's really not a good idea. Because in his journey of trying to disprove Christianity, he actually became a believer. And he wrote a book about it, and he talks about how prophecy was one of those things that tipped the balance toward belief. And here's what he wrote. He said, in many criminal cases, fingerprint identification is the pivotal evidence. I remember covering a trial in which a single thumbprint found on a cellophane wrapper of a cigarette package was the determining factor in convicting a 20-year-old burglar of murdering a college co-ed. That's how conclusive fingerprint evidence can be. He said, in the Old Testament, there are several dozen major prophecies about the coming of the Messiah who would be sent by God to redeem His people. In effect, these predictions form a figurative fingerprint that only the anointed one would be able to match. The way the Israelites could rule out any imposters and validate the credentials of the authentic Messiah. Listen to this. He says, against astronomical odds, one chance, and I'm going to take a big breath here, Trillion, 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 trillion. Jesus and only Jesus throughout history matched the prophetic fingerprint. This confirms Jesus' identity to an incredible degree of certainty. So here's the point. If there was no Christmas, we'd only have half a Bible. If there's no Christmas, then our Bible is untrue. We would be left at Malachi with just a bunch of broken promises. And so there had to be a Christmas so that God's word could be vindicated. And moreover, listen to this friend, the greatest proof that we have for the second coming of Jesus is we look back at the first coming of Jesus and because he fulfilled every one of those prophecies down to the jot and the tittle concerning his first coming, that's how I know he's coming back again a second time because God never makes a promise he doesn't keep. Amen? Jesus is going to come back and add the final brush strokes to the story. He's going to finish it all. Amen? Without Christmas... Our Bible would be untrue. And then notice this. Without Christmas, our God would be unknown. Our God would be unknown. If you have your Bible, you can turn over to John chapter 1. If you don't, 
It's on the screen. You can follow along with me. Let's read. This is a prologue to John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through Him. And without Him nothing was made that was made. And the Word, verse 14, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. The incarnation of the Son of God is the central miracle of Christianity. And without God's Son taking on human form, there would be no way we could have a correct understanding or knowledge of who God is. Now, in the prologue to John's Gospel here, we see that John chose a unique title to describe Christ. He calls Him the Word. If you could read it in the Greek, in the original language, it's actually the word logos. Now, let me give you a little backstory on that. To the Greek philosophers, the logos was the impersonal, abstract principle of reason and order in the universe. In other words, the Greeks looked out on the beauty and the intelligence and the regularity and the design of the universe and they concluded there, there had to be a maker. There had to be an unmoved mover. They didn't know who that God was, so they called Him the Logos. Well, John goes a step further. And he tells us in the prologue, he borrows that idea of the Logos. He says it's not just an idea, it's an individual. Not just a mind, it's a maker. Not just a philosophy, it's a person. And his per- the, the person's name is Jesus Christ. And so, as the Logos... Christ brought illumination. He brought revelation. As the word, listen to this, Jesus communicates God to us in a way that we can understand. I like to put it like this. Think about your words. What are your words? Well, they are your thoughts clothed in language. It's the way we understand what's on your mind. Like we tell our three-year-old, use your words. Before Christ came we had a murky understanding of who God really was. Only what the Old Testament prophets saw. Only what the people in the Old Testament experienced. And we don't know your thoughts unless you clothe those thoughts in words and explain to us your thoughts. Well, as the Word, Jesus explains God to us in a way that we can understand. He's the thoughts of God put in human form. He's... The adjective of God. He's the noun of God. He's the verb of God. So that when you look at the life of Jesus, you're looking at God in a human body. And without Christmas, mankind would still be groping around in the darkness trying to figure out, trying to understand, does God love me? Is God sovereign? Who is this creator? And we would be in the dark. I love what Max Lucado wrote about this. He said, quote, For ages before the first Christmas, mankind wondered about the image of God. Philosophers speculated and shamans made their idols. Just survey the religions of the world and you'll see the wild, fluctuating guesses. And boy, aren't there some of them. He said, God has been depicted as a golden calf, an angry volcano, a bearded man flinging thunderbolts. He wears wings, breathes fire, eats infants and demands penance. We fancied God is fickle, magical, aloof, and maniacal. 
a God to be avoided, dreaded, and appeased. But never in mankind's wildest imaginings did we consider that God would enter the world as an infant. Because of Christmas, he said, God has a face. What a great thought. Some of you of my generation and before, you remember these little devices that we had called radios. Everything's streaming now. But you turn on your radio, you had two choices. You had AM or FM. There was a great radio commentator years ago, a man by the name of Paul Harvey. Y'all know who I'm talking about, some of you. Those of you who don't know who I'm talking about, Google it. Paul Harvey, though, he'd always tell you the rest of the story, right? One Christmas Eve, he told a story on one of his radio broadcasts that I think best illustrates Christ coming into the world and showing us who God is. He said that one raw and windy Christmas Eve, a man heard an irregular thumping against his kitchen storm door. He went to the window and watched as tiny shivering sparrows were attracted to the warmth inside and and beat in vain against the glass. Touched, the farmer bundled up and trudged through the fresh snow to open up the barn for the struggling birds. He turned on the lights and threw some hay in the corner and sprinkled a trail of saltine crackers. But the sparrows had scattered in all directions when he emerged from the house and hid afraid. He tried various tactics circling behind the birds to to shoo them into the barn, tossing cracker crumbs in the air, retrieving, uh, retreating to his house to see if they would flutter in after he had gone. But nothing worked. He was a huge alien creature and had terrified them, and the birds could not understand that he was there to actually help. Paul Harvey said, And so the farmer withdrew into his house and watched the doomed sparrows through the window. And as he stared, he heard the faint ringing of church bells as they were calling worshipers to a Christmas Eve service. And at that moment, a flash hit him. He said, Altogether, it dawned on him as he heard the church bells, the simple farmer grasped the whole profound meaning of Jesus. Not coming as a bird, but Jesus coming as a man to lead men out of darkness and into light. That is why there has to be a Christmas, friends. Because in the miracle of a moment, time invaded eternity. Deity came to humanity. The infinite became an infant. And the mystery of God was made into a man. Oh, there's no more glorious truth than that right there. And there has to be a Christmas. Or else our Bible would be untrue. Or our God would be unknown. But then worst of all, number three, without Christmas... Our sins would be unforgiven. Our sins would be unforgiven. You see, in order for Christmas to have meaning, you cannot separate Christmas from the cross. If there's no cross, then we today are still objects of God's wrath and we would never attain the forgiveness of sins through our own good works. But as I said when we lit the candle a few minutes ago, Jesus is the only. He was born for the purpose of dying. 
And if you think about it, the shadow of the cross casts an unmistakably long shadow over that cradle in which he was born. Because remember what the angel told Joseph after his dream, or in that dream the angel told Joseph in Matthew one twenty one, she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus. And what church? He will save his people from their sins. He ever wondered, in all the pageants, all the sermons, all the songs and carols about Christmas, we know it backwards and forwards, have you ever wondered why the Bible says that when Jesus was born, Mary wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. And the angel told the shepherds, go to Bethlehem, you'll find the Christ child. And here's the sign. You'll see him wrapped in swaddling clothes, laying in a manger. You ever thought about that? Why is that going to be a sign? In fact, that's in Luke chapter 2 and verse 12. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Why is that a sign? I thought you'd never ask. Let me explain it to you. The sheep that grew up in the fields of Bethlehem, they were actually destined to go to Jerusalem to be sacrificed there. And the sheep that the shepherds were watching over that night that Jesus was born, those sheep had to be perfect specimens. You see, God had set this up long ago in the Old Testament that they couldn't offer an inferior sacrifice. It had to be a perfect lamb, without spot, without blemish, no broken limbs. And oftentimes the custom among the shepherds is when a newborn lamb came out of its mother, they would take that lamb because they realized how precious it was. This was a lamb that was destined for the temple. They would take that lamb and they would wrap it in cloth to prevent the lamb from injuring itself or flailing about and also to keep it warm. And they tell us that ancient shepherds would take the lambs and they would lay them in the manger to keep them safe and to keep them warm when they were born. No wonder then the angel told the shepherds that they would recognize the significance of what was lying in the manger because the birth of Jesus was orchestrated in such a way that He's the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. It's a preview, even there in the manger, that He was and is the sin bearer. He is the Passover Lamb. He's the Lamb of God. As John would say, seeing Jesus later come down the banks of the Jordan River, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I love what somebody wrote. A thousand times in history, a baby has become a king to rule a nation, but only once has a king become a baby to save all nations. That's my Jesus. And so you cannot separate the cradle and the cross. Bethlehem and Calvary, they're connected. You know, we do the Operation Christmas Child shoeboxes every year. We had a great turnout this year. I think we sent off about 90 boxes. And then we got to take the trip down to Charlotte to the big hub and pack those boxes and send them away. But while we were there, I got to do some research. And, you know, they have testimonial stories of how these shoeboxes go out all across the world and impact kids. I want to share with you one of those stories. This is Louise, pictured here 
on the screen. Louise grew up in Panama, and about 20 years ago, he got a shoebox. Here's his story. Louise said, as a kid, I lived in the ghetto. We were the poorest of the poor, and my life was hopeless. We never went to church, and we never talked about God, but all that changed, she said, on the day I got my shoebox. You see, when Louise opened his box, he found soap and a toothbrush, pencils and paper and erasers, a few toys, a race car. But he said the greatest treasure inside the little shoebox was a stuffed lamb that when you turned the crank and wound it up, it played the little song, Mary Had a Little Lamb. He said there was also a simple note attached to it which read, Jesus loves you and I do too. Well, one of the local pastors helped Louise understand the gospel and he used the lamb to connect the dots for him, show him that that little lamb is actually a picture of Jesus, the sinless lamb of God who died on the cross to save us from our sins. And Louise said, the lamb and the note allowed me to see that even though I didn't have a father and even though I don't have a perfect life, that God Almighty loved me. He said, as a result of that shoebox, I got saved. My mama gave her life to Jesus. My sister became a Christian. He kept the lamb. And today, he works for Operation Christmas Child. Amen. Amen. Only God could do such a miraculous thing. But that's a picture of why there must be Christmas. Without Christmas, our sins would be unforgiven. Without Christmas, our Bible would be untrue. And without Christmas, our God would be unknowable. But then lastly, I want to finish with this. Thank you for being so patient today. Just give me a couple more minutes. Without Christmas, our world would be undesirable. Friend, a world without Christmas wouldn't be a secularist dream. The ACLU and the atheists... And the university professors would not want to live in a world where there was no Jesus. It would be a dystopian nightmare if there was no Christmas. You'd probably have a better chance living in North Korea or Soviet Russia. You see, not only would we be hopelessly lost in our sins, but the world today in which we know it with all of our modern advancements and technology, that world would not exist. Everything that we take for granted today in science and technology and freedom and arts and civil society, it can all be traced back to Jesus coming into this world. And somebody said it perfectly, the hinge of history swung on the stable door of Bethlehem. You say, preacher, what do you mean? What kind of world would it be? Well, friend, we wouldn't be here today Because there'd be no church to speak of. Uh, There'd be no New Testament. There'd be no day of Pentecost. There'd be no coming of the Holy Spirit. There'd be no apostles. Friend, I wouldn't have anything to preach to you today if there wasn't a Christmas. There'd be no gospel as we know it. 
Just think of all the people today, all of you and your testimonies. You'd still be groping around in the darkness. You'd still be addicted. You'd still be depressed. You'd still be hopeless. You'd have no way out of the pit that you were in. But God loved you. And God sent a Son. And God sent a Savior. And that's why there has to be a Christmas. Think of all the people today who'd be addicted to drugs and alcohol and money and materialism. They'd be chasing after power and pleasure. They'd be living empty, meaningless lives. And such were some of you until Jesus came into your life and gave you hope and peace and a second chance. So there'd be no church. And God only knows where I'd be and you'd be. Oh, but it goes much deeper than that. If Jesus had not been born, listen, there'd be no scientific movement. There'd be no medicine. We'd still be in the dark ages. Why? Because Francis Bacon, Isaac Newton, Blaise Pascal, Galileo, Robert Boyle, Joseph Lister, the list goes on and on. All of those men of science who founded the school of science, who gave us all those breakthroughs and discoveries and technologies, they were all Christians. And they did what they did because they wanted to understand the mind of God. We wouldn't have any of that if Christ didn't come. Many of the world's greatest universities would be gone. There'd be no Princeton, no Harvard, no Yale. Why? Because all of those schools were started by Christians who wanted to train men for preaching the Gospels in the new world. Oh, and you can say goodbye to hospitals. Hospitals wouldn't exist. Why? Because the first hospitals were started by Christians. Because in the early Roman Empire, nobody took care of the sick and the disease and the, dead, the death. You just threw them out. You threw them in the street to die. But Christians, changed by the love of God, said, we've got to do something to provide peace and comfort and help to these people. And that's where hospitals came from. So there'd be no hospitals today. Chances are, many of us would be slaves today. You'd be a galley slave. Or you'd be out in a field. Or you'd be somebody's property. Why? Because men like William Wilberforce and Abraham Lincoln and Martin Luther King Jr., they were all Christians who did what they did because they believed the gospel and they believed the Word of God which says that we're all created in the image of God. So if you take away Christmas, you take away Christ, and the rest of the world follows in slavery and darkness. And finally, there'd be no America to speak of. Columbus, who believed he was being led by the Word of God and the will of God, would not have discovered the new world. There would be no pilgrims to break off from England to search for a place to worship Christ in freedom because all the pilgrims were Christians. There'd be no declaration of independence. There'd be no constitution. There'd be no Christian principles of all men created equal. Why? Because I don't care what the professors say or what the media says or the culture says. This country was started on a Christian foundation. and You can get rid of all that if there's no Christmas. So think about this, friend. One solitary life. Oh, his birth moved a star and rallied angels 
and troubled a king. In childhood, he puzzled men. In manhood, he ruled the course of nature, walking upon the stormy seas and turning water into wine and multiplying fishes and loaves. He healed the multitudes without medicine and never charged them one time. He never wrote a book, and yet the books about him fill all the libraries of all the world. And John said that the, all the books of the world could not contain all the wonderful things that he did and that he said, uh, friend, he never wrote a song. And yet think of all the hymns, all the cantatas, all the symphonies wrote about the name above every name, the name of Jesus. Christ. Hey, he never marshaled an army. He never ran for public office. And yet no leader has commanded such allegiance and such adoration by the millions as Jesus has. Hey, the kings and the presidents have come and gone. Scientists and philosophers and millionaires have all turned to dust. But I'm telling you today about a name that will last all. A name that's above every name. And this name is only going to get more famous down through history. Uh, they'll forget about Caesar. Uh, they'll forget about the Pharaohs. They'll forget about our president. But they're never going to forget about the name Jesus Christ. Why? Well, because His enemies could not understand Him. The grave could not hold Him. Satan couldn't defeat Him. He stepped out of heaven and He touched history and He touched time and He touched my life. And I want to know today, has He touched your life? Because if He's touched your life, you'll understand what I'm talking about today. And you'll raise your hand and you'll say, thank God for Christmas. Amen? Our musicians are coming today. I wonder, is this message for somebody? Somebody who's lost and hopeless out in the world. Somebody who's searching for answers. I want you to know that God loves you so much that He couldn't stay away. He came when nobody else could or would. And He lived a life that you and I could never live. He died a death that we deserved. He's not the baby in the manger anymore, friend. He went to a cross. He died... For your sin and mine. But He didn't stay dead and He won't stay gone. He's coming back. And I hope that you know Him. He's not just a figure in history. Oh, He's alive today. And you can meet Him if you come today and repent of your sin. And by faith say, Lord, I need You. He'll come in your life and He'll change you and He'll make you new. Can we stand and sing? And if you need to respond to this invitation or you need to come forward for prayer or you have a need in your life that only God can meet our altar is open right now please be obedient to what God would have you to do listen to his spirit